Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome, Brendan here with Mark, episode 143, Friday, July the 3rd, 2020. It's all happening here in Victoria, Mark, Victoria, Australia. We've been locked down, or some of our suburbs have, with the COVID issues here. As you know, it was main news item, the first news item in most of the studios. The new studios, Mark, Australia-wide, so... Fortunately or unfortunately, my suburb is not one of those suburbs locked down, Mark. What do you think of it all? Is the world ending? (laughs) It does feel, the way I was listening to the radio earlier today, it did sound all a bit apocalyptic, but I think we've got to keep it in perspective here in Australia. Uh, For the same um, 24 hours that uh, Victoria, I think, had um, might have had 76 new cases with the increased testing because there have been outbreaks. I think that um, Florida, over the same four, uh, 24 hours, had 41,000 new cases. So I do think that, um, that a little bit of perspective for us down in the great southern land is important. We've got to stop testing, Mark. Um, <laughs> we've got to stop testing and the numbers will go down. <laughs> yes, let's get off politics and the COVID issues and let's get on to the Vet Podcast, Mark. And thanks to all our three main sponsors, Specialised Animal Nutrition, Microchips Australia and of course, Chemical Essentials and thank them all. And also our listeners and um It's been a bit of a drought with emails the last week or so, Mark. We haven't had any new emails from our listeners, so please send us an email, vetgurus at gmail.com. Say hello, how are you coping with all the restrictions in your part of the world and um, what you're up to, and um, just say hi. Um, That would be good. So what have you been up to, Mark? And um, I think you had a bit of a a, um, photographical comment um you want to talk about a competition i did i did i wondered where you were going with that (laughs) yes i was i was heading nowhere so i stopped (laughs) um i wanted to um uh, in my um inbox uh, from a number of the people i follow on social media i've gotten alerts to the um the wonderful nature photographer of the year uh, uh competition this is a uh a competition held conjunction uh, in conjunction between um, the Australian Geographic magazine, the South Australian government, and the South Australian Museum. And uh, the photographers, photographers from around the world, are invited to submit their nature and wildlife photographs from the bioregion of Australia, New Zealand, Antarctica, and New Guinea. And um, and uh, the, the shortlist, the, the finalists haven't been awarded. But the shortlist has been published and uh, I thought it was, um, well, because we're both so interested in uh, this style of photography, um, though I'm not very good at it, um, I thought we'd uh, just quickly scan over them and and give our opinion of them, Brendan. Yes, well, 
I'd like your opinion of the, let's have a look, of the picture that is the animal habitat group. And it is a couple of pictures from um, the cold bits of the world, Mark, um, the wet, cold bits of the world. So I'd like your opinion on those. So there's a couple from Antarctic. There is indeed. The, the, in fact, the shortlist has, um, and I think this is a, a feature of, uh, I suspect that, uh, there's an increased number of these pictures because photographers who have access to this part of the world, uh, you know, there's more of them. But I, I, you know, having had a recent visit there myself and with coronavirus, I said, uh, my my bet is that um, this part of the world will open up relatively slowly. I think, Brendan, and I think um, the photographs are intoxicating, really. And uh, and having been there, they really draw you back and uh, and remind you of the things you saw and um, and the special perspective that these photographers are able to draw out of those uh, interactions with um, the cold part of the world. Um, yeah, I love them. I think they're great. I want to go Interesting. back again. Yes, interestingly enough, Mark, one of the pictures – that made the final um, is a scrub python. Have you seen that one? I d- I d- uh, you know, the- Junior. And it, yeah, interestingly enough, the image credit, the person who submitted it, Robert Irwin. So Steve Irwin's son. Um, Robert's really carving for himself worldwide, not just in the um, Australian Nature Photographer of the Year, but, um, and, and he's not that. There are sections of these photography competitions that are given to uh, encouraging young photographers, and I think uh, Robert might be sixteen or seventeen now. He competes fully with the, you know, the the professional photographers. He's not mucking around with some kids section uh, that needs encouragement um, uh, to pursue their dream. He's fully like. Playing with the big boys and uh, and really he's uh, I think um, he's fully sick, Mark. That's what you should be saying. <laughs> fully sick. That's right. that's what the young people would say, Brendan. Yes, those youngsters. Yes. Well, I'm going to jump into the first news story, Mark, that I have, oh, and it's so about punchy. the wildlife toll here in Australia and an estimate of feral and domestic cats killing around about 3.1 million mammals, 1 million birds, 1.7 million reptiles. Oh, yeah, I presume. Um, that's my story, Mark. Um, it goes on a little bit more about um, the Invasive Species Council and uh, their inquiry um, and thinking about how we can stop it all um, and the usual comments about um, suggesting cat owners should be keeping their cats in or at least confined to nice habitats that they can roam around and get a bit of environmental enrichment in those um, fantastic little constructions you can put on the end of your house did you have one of those at one stage i'm trying i still do did you? we you still do, do. That's our right. cats uh, we have a yes. cat um run and uh um cat, an run, yes. cat run which um allows them to bathe in the sun and do some extra exercise um so and our cats um never go outside uh, outside when you know without being in their their um cat run well done i mean the estimate by this study was that on average pet cats kill each pet cat on average kills 75 animals per year mark um, and most of these are not 
witnessed by their owners. And I must admit, our um, neighbour, one of our neighbours, I won't say which side, <laughs> um, <laughs> they have one of their cats that is out and doesn't um, come in at night. And um, yeah, it's a bit, um, a bit of a truant, Mark. So yes, um, I need to have a bit of a chat to our neighbour again about it. Not like normally as usual, as most people do. But um, yes, so that's my first news story, and I don't think we need well. It doesn't say anything new, does it, Mark? Um, it's a bit depressing, that one. I need a, a positive news story. And my next one after your first news story will be – actually, no, it's a negative one as well. So um, you better jump into your first one, Mark. <laughs> well, mine, uh, my first story has a what might on the surface of it appear to be a bit of a downer as a, a title, um, but it's, it's actually – I hope, I'm hopeful, I'm optimistic that it's a good news story. The story's um, – about um, whale feces, Brendan. Um, well, the title is that whale feces represent one of the greatest allies against climate change, even more than trees. And the logic that this um, this uh, uh, article is um, dictating is that um, whales, with their droppings, the dropping whale droppings provide a massive fertiliser um, uh, um, uh, um, boost to the phytoplankton. And phytoplankton are the marine algae, microscopic marine algae that uh, floats at the centre of several marine feed webs um, and they provide uh, food for a host of sea creatures, interestingly enough, including whales, um, but they they are a huge carbon dioxide sink. They suck huge amounts of carbon dioxide out, and um, you know the next order of uh, the next trophic order, the um, the krill and whatnot, they feed on that phytoplankton, um, and so whales are an absolutely critical factor in that. And when they dive and go and try and get a mouthful of krill or whatever, um, they release these uh, fecal plumes, um, which uh, provide key food source for the phytoplanktons, which suck um, heaps of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Um, so that's a good thing. And um, and I know just locally, um, we're seeing a like just off the coast here, we're seeing a dramatic increase in the number of um, of. Uh, well, humpback whales. I was out on the water, Brendan, last weekend, Sunday week ago, um, and we saw our first orcas, um, and they're moving up and down the coast with the abundant number, the new number of um, of uh, um, humpbacks. And so, um, the, this article reports that even uh, just one percent increase in the phytoplankton uh, productivity, thanks to whale activity, could capture hundreds of millions of tonnes of additional carbon dioxide. Um, uh, their estimates, uh, you know, equate it to something like um, 2 billion mature trees. So so it's good that the whales are coming back. It's good that they're shitting in the water and it's good that that is providing <laughs> fertiliser for phytoplankton to suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. The interesting thing I found about this report, Mark, is the paper was by an economist at the International Monetary Fund and they presented their report at the World Economic Forum in 
Davos, Davos. Uh, Switzerland. Um, and uh, apparently the author and his biologist colleague were swamped afterwards by all these um, boring bankers and investment managers um, who wanted to help out. So that's good that um, they're getting out there, Mark, into the world of the economy, Mark. Um, it's sort of a story there. So that's a, that's a um, bit I enjoyed about that particular story. I just can't keep you away from the politics of it all, Brendan. <laughs> that's right. Well, let me tell you about my next story, Mark. The sounds of silent space come to life in a must-listen soundtrack, Mark. This this is fascinating for all the wrong reasons, Mark. And according to this story, the eerie and unusually unheard sounds of space have been captured and could be the next hot hit, hit thanks to new research. So what has happened is the Unique Project took the recordings of the Earth's natural radio sounds, which are normally not audible to the human ear, and they added a piano back in to create Aurora Musicalis. And have you listened to any of this, Mark? No, no. Link to it. It's it's terrible. It's really <laughs> bad. It is really bad. All it is is somebody playing a piano and you can hear these little clicks and, and it's like a bit of static in the background um, and that's the natural. So I was very disappointed with it, um, very disappointed with this. So I, I, what, I think what was their your, comment that – How did you rate it, Brendan? Out of the score 10, of 10. Uh, one, yeah, <laughs> one out of ten. Um, yes, um, it's got well, uh, no, ones for the names they've given to the various tracks, and it's free to download. So if you're interested, dear listener, just go to our website and click on the link to it, and you can download all all the tracks um, free. Like there's one called Sonic Rain. There's one called Daydreaming at Halley. Um, there's the compilation is number 12 um, and 13. And um, the first one, which I think is the, the A-side of their, their single market, it's called The Symphony of the Harmony of the Celestial Revelations. Um, oh, dear. And they all sound the same um, with somebody just playing a bit of piano and all you can hear is little clicks. Um, maybe, or maybe it's just that my... my um, my hearing is going and I can't hear these very low-frequency sounds um, that were detected. Um, good idea, uh, but poorly executed um, is my comment. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my second news story, Mac. Well, my uh, that'll mean that I'm on to my second news story. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, my, my second... Have you read it yet? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> As you all know, just before we started. Um, my second news story is uh, um, about uh, three new species of pterosaur which were discovered in the Sahara. And I always love our dinosaur stories because they remind me of the fact that um, that the premier unusual and exotic animal veterinarians almost certainly will be once... Uh, you know, Jurassic Park gets going and there's live dinosaurs that need veterinary care. Um, it'll be the UPAV uh, veterinarians who, the leading UPAV veterinarians who'll be amongst the ones working on them. So I always think I've got this vision of you drawing blood out of the wings of one of these pterosaurs, Brendan. So I think you you can see yourself as a Jeff Goldblum, <laughs> can you? Um, I'll be the Sam Neil, um, and you can be Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, so my my, why do they have a 
a silent P on the end of um, the name there, Mark. How did um, I just don't understand when they get um, some of these names? Uh, <laughs> I thought you were you you've done Latin, haven't you? You were telling me you did Latin at school, didn't you? Uh, did I? No, I didn't. Oh. No, I didn't do Latin. Um, but yeah, must be one of my, think- my other good-looking friends. <laughs> That's right. Yes. So they have a they have a um, have a little line drawing, don't they, of the um, supposed pterosaurus there that was found, um, new species. Um, what do you think of it? Um, I think two things. I think these are. I love these stories, and I love um, the way that uh, the paleontologists. Uh, first of all, I just love the idea of getting fossils. Then I love the way they deduce details about the animals from the fossils. Um, and they, I think they're getting much better. All of us who love dinosaurs will know that they um, stuffed up the um, Iguanodon originally and there's a statue of a screwed-up Iguanodon in England, but then they figured out that... Um, the thumb didn't. The thumb bone didn't belong on the nose. I think that's the way it works. But they're getting much better at this stuff. And there's a whole um, subculture of artists who try to, once they know something about the anatomy, they try to create, recreate what the animals might look like, even down to the colours, deducing from the behaviour and current, you know, extant species. Um, I love this work. I, I reckon it's awesome. And each time they find three new species um, and they put them together, I it really, I get really um, interested and excited in it. Um, and and it always, um, you know, it's uh, um, large pterosaurs, um, they... they those they the large birds of prey that we have now, or the albatross, the birds that soar and and um, skim over the sky. Um, I just think it would be um, an ex the concept of a reptile doing that, and the way these um, these pterosaurs appear to look. Um, it's really quite interesting, exciting. Three to four meter wingspan of these guys um, from the middle Cretaceous had aerial uh, fisher. They, they, you know, prob- like many of those skimmer fishes, the birds that uh, fly along the surface of the water and catch fish at the surface, it looks like these were that type of skimmer fisher um, uh, predator. Big teeth, Mark. They were, they were, I reckon they were pulling out some bloody big fish off the surface of the water. Um, yes. yes. I love these stories, Brendan. More of them. So you reckon they just don't make stuff up and just, just draw what they think it might look like? No, no, I think they completely make stuff up. Um, but I think they, they, it's it's sort of like they're getting better. The margin, the margin for error is less than it once was. Yes, that's put it nicely. Well, my final story, Mark, is about snakes having friends, and I know you and I always bang on about um, the species that should have friends, including ourselves. <laughs> and a study was done with garter snakes, Mark, garter snakes, of course, um, that was looking at whether or not whether or not snakes interact with each other and the idea that um, reptiles or snakes um, may be loners may be incorrect. So what they did, they, they marked each with a little non-toxic coloured dot on its head and, and with these batches of snakes and they mixed them up into an enclosure and they 
videoed them um, for eight days um, and they recorded where they went um, in the arena every five seconds or so and they took photographs of them and their conclusions were that they returned to their original groups where they were um, from um, and they sought out specific snakes that they'd hung out with before mark so they've got mates um, they've got friends have they is that the um, correct conclusion from it mark or not and um, well I think it's a bit of a drawing a long bow there, isn't it? Um, they've, I'm a bit cynical tonight. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, they have sophisticated social cognition, um, says one of the researchers. That, that is the long bow. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes. And well, let's go to the next paragraph, Mark. The scientists also tested the snake's personalities, namely whether or not they were shy or bold. And um, if they were bold, they put it in a shelter alone. And the shy individuals tended to stay put and rarely ventured into the larger enclosures. Um, and, I, I mean, certainly we do. I, I always, when I'm chatting to new snake owners or, or students or, or veterinary nurses, um, I do mention that all, all animals t- have their own personality, don't they? And and we all know what which particular snake species we we love or loathe based on their their aggressiveness, um, but we do have individual variations um, within species. So, I think that's that's correct in that you know you will have individuals that um, have different traits as far as um, what you might call personality with them, and um, but you can train them, can't you, Mark, um, to to socialise better um, and maybe calm them down a bit. And um, a little bit off track here, but, Mark, I've had a couple of clients recently who have had um, reptiles that are aggressive to the owners and um, the client has said to me, look, and one of them was a a, a, um, a juvenile-ish bearded dragon, Mark, um, that every time the um, client tries to take the bitter dragon out of the enclosure it has a go at them and um, is fairly aggressive trying to bite um, so it's not an infrequent request um, from a client saying how can we modify the behavior or is there something wrong with my reptile um, what can I do and I and I agree with you we get we do get an awful lot of those um, types of inquiries and and I and I am exceedingly careful of anthropomorphizing you know, I, I I worry that we over-interpret um, what are fairly simple. They they definitely have personalities and um, and behaviours, and they have individual characteristics. I I'm not arguing that. I'm just I don't want to apply too much sophistication to them. I want uh, I think you know. I, we we had an interesting one, just like you described, a young bearded dragon um, biting the owners. When we finally got them to bring it in, it it had a serious, um, you know, it had metabolic bone disease and had a serious injury, um, and so it obviously was in pain each time it was being gotten out of the enclosure. And so it's no big surprise that it bit the owners um, all the time when they were doing that. Um, so I think, yeah, I'm just cautious. I, you know, how much I love my reptiles and i love uh trying to understand them more and and um i love being around them but um i don't know that they i don't know how sophisticated they are brendan that's all in their behaviors and personalities maybe i'm wrong good point mark good point mark well i used to say those clients 
that client, um, your bearded dragon doesn't like you, neither <laughs> do I. Yes, so go yes. and see Mark instead. <laughs> <laughs> yes, what's your – do you have one final news story, Mark? I do have one final one, um, and it's, um, it's a topic I return to repeatedly because I love it so much, the night parrot. Um, and the latest news on our night parrots um, – uh, this article comes, surprisingly enough, from the Pet Industry News uh, 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 magazine. Um, it talks about uh, that night parrots um, may not actually see that well at night. Um, and the interesting thing about it is that um, uh, some researchers at UQ took a... Uh, um, a, a um, bird that had been preserved, a 1990 bird that had come into um, the possession of uh, Queensland Museum in 1990, um, and they uh, uh, did some complex imaging. They did a, it's a the, I'm wrapped in that picture. That's almost worth turning into a poster. It is a um, it is a Work of art. Yeah, I was just trying to. It's, it's a. It's a. Um, it's a, a, a CT scan, isn't it? I think it is. Yeah, it's a three D um, rendering. Of yeah. A CT, I think. Anyway, the key thing about it is that in this uh, um, in this analysis with the complex imaging, they've decided that proportionate to the size of the brain, the the um, the part of the cortex that deals with vision is small um, relative to other species. Um, and so their conclusion is that um, is that the bird is unlikely to be able to see as well. Um, and, um, and that, you know, there have been some incidences um, where the birds get tangled up in fences, for example. Um, and so they're, they're, they're theorising that... Um, that uh, Things like electrical fencing, or um, uh, that that may be a risk for these um, species, um, and that um, that may be more obvious uh, fencing if that needs to be, because some of the area these birds occur in um, is actually on cattle properties, um, and so if there is fencing, particularly high vis fencing, might be a, a more useful thing. Um, yeah, it's a really. I don't. I don't know that I. Um, uh, you know, maybe the birds have very, like many of these uh, species that are approaching um, extinction. Maybe they have. Um, they're so specialised that um, that uh, they don't spend a lot of their visual cortex on, on you know, because they don't do a lot of stuff in the day when there's light around, and their their visual cortex is very specific and and uh specialized to to a little information from the dark um so so i'll be interested to see if they do the you know the auditory uh part of the um um you know the the, the cerebral cortex and yes. whether these birds listen more um than than they uh, see that'd be an interesting thing to find out and that picture there, Mark, or that um, what I think is a 3D um, rendering yeah. 
of a CT scan, they are calling it an endocast um, later on in that article. Yes. That picture, yeah. But I think it's a it's a CT scan with an endocast in it and you learn something every day because I didn't really know what a definition of an endocast is, which is an internal cast of a hollow object, which is often referring to the cranial vault according to Wikipedia. So, um, And they often use a bit of rubber or, or um, rubber-like cast in material um, once they've opened up the brain cavity to make an endocast. So I think that's a combination there, Mark, of a, I'm pretty sure it's a CT um, rendering yeah, there yeah. With, with an endocast as well, sort of layered on top of it. So wow, there you go. You've got to learn something every day, don't you, Mark? Um, and if you know as little uh, as me, you've got to learn several things. And if you listen to our podcast, you learn nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we're going to, Quit here, Mark, while we're um, ahead, so to speak, and uh, we will talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thanks.